And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home to his village, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake And the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the reading of the Lord. What is... A Christian. What is a Christian? Depending on who you ask, you'll probably get a lot of different answers. One particular view that's gained a lot of traction in America in particular is that view that Christianity is a means of self-fulfillment. Now, you'll hear, you'll hear people claim the name of Christ saying things like, I need to do what's good for me. Or maybe the way that the younger folks say it is, I got to do me. Well, the idea of loving yourself and putting yourself first is all over. It's all over TV, it's in music, it's in movies. But not only that, it's also in a lot of what you might hear from Christian teachers. We hear often the idea that an individual's sense of true identity is to be sought inwardly. We're supposed to, to look down deep inside, listen to our hearts and express that to the world. And that's how we can be authentic to ourselves. Put yourself first. But for those who take on the name of Christ, of Christian, it's important to find out what Christ himself had to say about what it means to be a Christian. The word Christian is used, I think, the first time in Acts 11 in the Bible, where it describes people who belong to, are devoted to, Christ. Christ followers. I think Charles Hodge, he was a theologian from the 1800s, I think he has a really good definition. I'm going to read this for us. This is his definition of what a Christian is. He says this. A Christian is one who recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, as God manifested in the flesh. 
loving us and dying for our, our redemption, and who is so affected by a sense of the love of this incarnate God as to be constrained to make the will of Christ the rule of his obedience and the glory of Christ, the great end for which he lives. I think that's a great short definition that Charles has written for us there because I think it captures everything that we see today in the text. A Christian recognizes Jesus as the Christ who died for our redemption and submits to his will. If you call yourself a Christian, is that who you understand yourself to be? You know, some people might be willing to to recognize that, yes, he's the Christ, and yes, he died for my sin. Maybe fewer people, though, are willing to get down with that idea of having to submit their will to his, of having their will constrained, of denying themselves and denying their own desires for his sake. But that is what Jesus, who is the Christ, has called us to do. All who would follow him are to take up their cross and to follow him. So as we continue in this sermon series, The Amazing True Story of Jesus, we're going to see today that the ministry of Jesus is going to take a big turn right here in this particular passage. He performs a miracle that I think illustrates to his disciples that he's not simply, not merely a ministry, a miracle-making Messiah, not just a miracle-making Messiah, but he's also a suffering servant who would die on a cross. And then he calls everyone who would follow him to to take up their cross. And so our our big idea this morning that we're going to be walking through, seeing from the text, is that Christ opens our eyes to follow him in a cross-centered life. Christ opens our eyes to follow him in a cross-centered life. Have you got your Bibles open and ready? I hope you have them in front of you. Hopefully everything you see that I say comes from the Bible. And that's where my authority comes from this morning. It's not because I'm a guru. I'm here to try to explain, hold up God's word for you and apply it for us. Before we start, though, let me pray for us. It's my hope that all of us leave here this morning clearly seeing Jesus, seeing what he's done, seeing what he's called us to do. So would you pray with me this morning and ask for God to help us in that? Father, you are good, and you're sovereign, and you're loving. You're the creator of all things. You've sent your son to to redeem us from our own rebellion, to win us back to you through his blood, through his cross. So this morning, Father, I pray that you would take away any distractions that any of us might here be thinking of. Maybe anxiety this morning about uh, things that we're going to be doing later today or uh, thinking about uh, what we're going to have for lunch. Father, would you just remove that from us this morning? Because what we want to do here is see your son clearly. And I believe that's what you would have us to do. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to help us in that, to illumine our hearts, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear Jesus for who he truly is. And Father, would you keep me from error this morning as I preach your word? Father, we love you and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, where the blind man gradually sees. 
I'm going to read that for us again. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, Well, I see people, but like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Well, throughout this Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus do some amazing things. He's called out demons. He's cleansed a leper, healed a paralytic, forgiven sins, healed a man with a withered hand. He's calmed a storm. He's raised the dead. He's fed thousands with some fish and some loaves. He's walked on water. He's healed a deaf man. And here, uh, what we see is though that he's got one more miracle that I think is sort of a transitionary miracle into this next phase of his ministry. Now for us, with the benefit of having read this, uh, this account of Jesus' life and ministry as a narrative, we read this as a story. We know full well that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And we know this because we're kind of cheating. We see it in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Mark. Uh, Mark's told us right off the bat who Jesus is. And so what, when, when Peter confesses this, we're like, yeah, we know. But that's really only because we're sort of cheating. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark starts out his gospel. So when we see that Jesus interacts with people and he makes claims and he performs miracles, and we see how those disciples are gradually coming to that same understanding that we've had all along. Namely, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. And I think that this miracle that we see here in verses 22 to 26 is actually an illustration of, of that fact. Upon first reading this, you might find it a little bit strange, right? And Jesus has done some amazing things already. We've seen his incredible power. He's, he's healed people over and over again before this in Mark's gospel. So why does it seem like he's botching this miracle? What, has he only given it half his effort? I think that's a wrong way to look at it. If we zoom out and we sort of pay attention to what happened before this and what happens after it, I think it helps us understand what's happening here in this miracle. You see, this was definitely an act of mercy on Jesus' behalf to the blind man, right? That's clear. But I think this miracle was done for the benefit of the disciples. You see there in the text, it was not done in the public like so many of his other miracles were. It was done outside of the village, This wasn't done in public. And so I think that that whenever Mark says that sort of thing, Jesus takes his disciples aside, it's usually because he's teaching the disciples. I think that's what we see here. Jesus is not just performing a miracle. He's performing a parable. Because immediately before this, if you recall from last week, the disciples are on a boat, and they're in the boat with Jesus, and he has just recently fed 4,000 with a few little loaves and some fish. But the disciples are kind of worried They don't have any bread on the boat. And Jesus says, guys, don't you get it? Having eyes, do you not see? Are your hearts hardened? So you can see there that Jesus has made a connection. Do you see it? A connection between seeing and understanding. They didn't understand that Jesus himself is the bread of life. They couldn't see it. And immediately what follows this, this miracle... 
Jesus gives, sight to a, Jesus gives sight to a blind man. But he doesn't do it all at once. He does it in two stages, and he does it on purpose. Jesus spits on his eyes, lays his hands on them, and the man said that he could see people rocking around, but they're blurry, like trees walking around. And then Jesus lays his hands on him a second time, and he sees clearly. And this miracle, I think, is a dramatic illustration of what comes next in the text. So let's look together at verses 27 to 30. And it's here that finally uh, Peter sees that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 27, look at it with me. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, "Uh, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So having just performed that dramatic parable of miraculously and sovereignly giving sight to the blind man, which again represents understanding, Jesus asks them, his disciples, who he is understood to be. At first he asks about the general public. So what's the word on the street? I know people are following me, there's big crowds. What's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? They respond, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, one of the prophets. And so apparently the word on the street is that some folks thought that he was John the Baptist, who, if you recall, was was beheaded a couple chapters ago, chapter 6, we saw that. They thought maybe it was John the Baptist who had been revived, maybe he had come back to life, maybe that's who Jesus is. Others, though, thought that he might be Elijah. Because you recall in the Old Testament, Elijah doesn't have a, a death that's recorded, he he doesn't die, and so they're thinking, and there's a tradition that uh, Elijah was meant to return in the end times. And so they thought, well, maybe this is Elijah. Maybe this is, maybe this is it. He performed a lot of similar miracles to Jesus. Or maybe he's just some other prophet. Who knows? So the public, you see, could see Jesus. They could see him, but he was just a, a blurry vision, sort of like a tree. And then Jesus asks, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, ever the first to respond, gets it exactly right. He says correctly, you are the Christ. Peter understood the true identity of Jesus. He knew that this, ah, this is long-awaited Christ, the Messiah that the prophets have told us about for hundreds of years. And Peter was right. Peter was right. That is who he is. Finally, here in the middle of in the middle of this gospel of Mark, the central focus of Mark, this gospel, Peter has finally confessed what we knew to be true all along. Jesus is the Christ. And today, some 2,000 years later, Jesus is, you'd have to agree with me, I think, indisputably the most famous person in history. Even in our own perspective of time, it all revolves around Jesus, around his life. I mean, here we are in A.D. 2017, Anno Domini, Latin for the year of our Lord, still talking about him a lot. Uh, In fact, uh, the most perennially, year after year, the most Googled person is Jesus. An interest in the identity of Jesus, people wondering who Jesus is, it usually peaks around Christmas and Easter. And I think that that's probably what you might imagine. And that's typically when time and Newsweek put out those issues that we all see. Who is Jesus? 
And it's when Nat Geo and the History Channel, they air their specials on, uh, on an effort to answer this question, who is Jesus? But sadly, most of them see Jesus mostly as a blurry figure walking around like a tree. You see, an unbelieving, non-understanding eye might see Jesus, they might see him, they might see him as a holy man, but the eye of faith sees him as the Christ. A blurry vision of Jesus sees him as a great moral teacher, perhaps. Not a moral teacher whose morals I prefer to follow, but a moral teacher nonetheless. But the understanding eye of faith sees him as the creator and the sustainer of all things. That fuzzy, incomplete image of Jesus, you might recognize him as a friend, that non-judgmental buddy who's, who's always there for you to turn to and you need a quick pick-me-up. But the precise, the precise vision of Jesus sees him as the same way that John the Baptist did, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe a clouded Jesus may seem to only have value in the fact that his name can be used as an offensive expletive, whereas the eye of faith sees him as the great I am. But enough about them. Who do you say that Jesus is? You, in your seat, now. You don't have to answer out loud, but you do have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? There is no greater question for you to ask yourself in all of life. Can you hear the words of Jesus himself as you see this? As he says, who do you say that I am? This confession that Jesus is the Christ, as we read earlier together, that was summed up in that Apostles' Creed, this confession is the ground zero of Christianity. But friends, be mindful of how you answer that question. There still may be more about Jesus that you haven't quite understood. There might still be more that you need to learn. So let's read, continuing in verse 31. I'll read that for us. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days... Rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, so far we've seen that the disciples have rightly understood the identity of Jesus. They recognize that he's the Christ. But this following section makes it clear that they don't really understand what that means. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? They don't understand what his mission is. This long-promised Messiah who had reigned from King David's throne was expected to come and restore the kingdom to Israel. That's what they were expecting. He was supposed to come and take them out of their Roman oppression that they had been suffering under. And we we know this because we sing it uh, every Christmas. Emmanuel, God God with us, was supposed to ransom captive Israel. This is what they were expecting. And so you might imagine their confusion when Jesus comes and he says that his plan is not to put together a political coalition, but to suffer and be killed and rise again. You can understand their confusion when he says that. And so Peter does not like this idea. Peter 
Peter takes Jesus aside and he, and he rebukes him. He scolds him. Like, no, 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 Jesus. We're, we're not doing that. That is not the plan. He doesn't want Jesus to suffer and die. Peter, who's ever the first to respond, this time gets it exactly wrong. Jesus, using his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, what he does is he upends their expectations. And Peter is at once bewildered and incensed. This is not the Christ that I was looking for. He expected nothing more than a conquering king. But he was met by nothing less than a man of sorrows. Jesus, the Christ, was not simply a miracle-making Messiah. He was also to be the suffering servant. This is that second level of understanding, that second level of vision that I think that that miracle illustrates for us. This is what the disciples need to see. This is what we need to see. And this is what we find, again, when we read in what Kevin read for us is the call to worship text. I think we see this there. Isaiah 52. This is what the prophets had said. This is what they had foretold, but they didn't quite get it. Verses 13 to 15 of Isaiah 52. Let me read that for us. Behold my servant, which we now understand to be Jesus himself, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And listen, listen to this part, this revelation about his true identity that is sovereignly given to us by God. For that which has not been told them, they see. That which they had not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's from Isaiah 52. The timeless mystery of the gospel is being unfolded right before the eyes of the disciples. The Christ, who will be high and lifted up, he will be exalted, but not at first on a throne, but on a cross. Because he is the Christ, because he's the Christ, he will be martyred. He'll be marred beyond recognition. He will suffer many things, and he will sprinkle many nations. You understand what that means, to sprinkle many nations? This is where some familiarity with the Old Testament comes in very helpful. Sprinkling has a defined meaning in the Bible. Blood was sprinkled in the sacrificial rituals of the nation of Israel. On the Day of Atonement, Israel's priests would dip his finger in the blood of a sacrificed bull and sprinkle it on the front of the mercy seat. In that ritual, the priest makes atonement for the holy place because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, because of their sins. So because, uh, because of that sprinkling, the, the, clean, the, the cleanseness of, of their sins is brought. The, their sins are taken away. Are you beginning to see this? That Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed, and his blood would sprinkle many nations, removing their transgressions, all of their sins. Are you seeing it yet? Hebrews 9 says this, For if the blood of goats and of bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews 9. So Jesus, the Christ, he was was more than the disciples were expecting. 
He wasn't only going to deliver Israel from physical oppression. Uh, What he was going to do is deliver many people from many nations from their sins. And this is, I believe, in part, why Jesus wanted to keep his, his identity a secret. Is that messianic secret? I think he understood that they didn't really get a full picture of his mission. And he didn't want to bring the wrath of the Roman government down on himself before the time was right. So he's like, let's, let's just keep, this, keep it under wraps for now. But this suffering, this suffering would be very costly to Jesus. His response to Peter, I think, makes that clear. Although at first it seems like a bit of an overreaction, right? When Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. All right, chill out. No, I think what's happening here, this makes sense if you understand that Jesus is human. And Peter, what Peter is doing here, is he's looking out for Jesus' best interests. And so that's why you kind of think, I I think you're being a little hard on Peter. But here's the thing, Jesus is not concerned with his own self-interest. He's concerned with doing the will of the Father. And we see this earlier on in the Gospel of Mark and in in the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke. Jesus, early on in his ministry, is tempted by Satan, right, in the wilderness. Satan comes to him and says, hey, look, if you just bow down before me, I will give you the world. You can have it. All you need to do is deny your father and worship me. And what was happening there, what was happening, I think is Satan was offering Jesus glory without the cross. He's saying, look, you don't need to go to the cross. I'll give you glory. You can have it. You don't need to suffer. And how did Jesus respond? You shall worship the Lord alone, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him. Get behind me, Satan. And so I think Jesus was legitimately tempted. We can quibble about it. I think he was legitimately tempted by Satan. And Peter more or less echoed the words of Satan there. He's saying, look, you can have glory, and you don't need the cross. This is the words of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus says that a crossless Christianity is satanic. So if your vision of Jesus does not include Jesus suffering many things, your sight is still blurry. If you don't understand that the core, the very core of Christianity is that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, He was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Look again. He came for the purpose of giving his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' mission was always, this was always his mission, was to head to the cross. And this is good news. And it's a crucial part, if you will, of the good news. If there's no cross, if there is no cross, friends, there is no divine justice. If there is no cross, there is no divine love. There's no canceling of our sin debt. Without the cross, there would be no defeat of death. There would be no defeat of the devil. No reconciliation between God and man. And we would have no access to come before God and worship him like we're doing here this morning. Without the cross. Without the cross, there would be no Christianity. Jesus Christ had a cross-centered mission. I was talking to to Josh about this earlier this week, sort of explaining what I had planned to preach. And he said, okay, so it sounds like you're saying that you can't truly see Jesus unless you're cross-eyed. I said, yeah, I think that's right. That's a clever way to put it. 
It's only when you're cross-eyed that you can see Jesus clearly. And that's why we spend so much time here singing about the cross of Christ. Have you noticed that? I hope you have. Do you think that we do that because we intend to be macabre? No. Our songs are selected with more than simple stylistic concerns. We focus on the cross because it's mainly a pastoral concern. We sing about the cross because without the cross, there is no Christianity. Dear friends, we may have more insight than Peter had when he said, when he rebuked Jesus for, for taking up his cross, but we are just as prone as him to set our mind on the things of man. And that's why we, week in, week out, regularly gather together as his people to, to rub our eyes and to ask him to touch our eyes and to shine into our night until his glory fills our eyes. Jesus had a cross-centered mission. The way to glory was through the cross, and his followers should expect no less. Let's keep reading our last portion of the passage here, verses 34 to 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All right, so Jesus, has, he's just made it plain, made it very clear to the disciples that because he is the Christ, he is to suffer. And his mission is cross-centered. He has a cross-centered mission. And now, he calls for your cross-centered submission. You know, the way that Mark wrote this gospel account is brilliant. And I don't think we notice that if we're just reading through it, but in studying this, I loved what I saw. I think that Mark is brilliant in the way that he did this. You and I, as I mentioned earlier, we start off the gospel sort of uh, being on the inside of this messianic secret. And we start off and it says, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God. So we know. And so we're watching this story, this narrative unfold of the disciples witnessing these miracles and hearing the teaching of Christ, his preaching, and from, from, from there, we're watching them sort of gradually figuring it out. And we, get to, we get to watch along with them. We're like, oh, are they, are they going to get it? Why don't they get it? What's the deal? But this, this is new information. This is new information both to the disciples. This is new information to us. He's calling all of us to take up our cross. So suddenly, he's taking us from sort of being detached observers of the story. And he's pulled us right down into it. We're no, longer, we're no longer above the story. He's pulled us into it. Now we're on the same level as those disciples, the crowd that he, was respond, that he was speaking to, and now we are responsible, just like the crowd, 
to respond to Jesus just, that, just like they did. So have you seen Jesus with eyes of faith yet? Do you see who he is? Do you understand what he came to do? If you have, you'll see that there is no way for you to remain neutral to Jesus. If he's the creator of everything, the sustainer of all things, if he's the redeemer of mankind, if he's the one mediator between God and man, the Lord, you have got to decide. Do I believe he's my Lord? And then, this following question that is too often overlooked also must be answered. Am I willing to take up my cross and follow him? This question cannot be answered with a shrug of the shoulders, friends. If you've just heard what Jesus has said here, then hopefully you realize that he has left you and I, he has left us no third way. There is no, there's no cheaper version of Christianity. There's no Christianity light that you can sign up for. This is not just for people that are in ministry. This is not just for people in seminary. This is not for people who just think, I want to be a super Christian, so I'm going to take up my cross. No, this is not an optional add-on to Christianity. He's not left us that option. He's saying it to everyone who would be his disciples. This is a general call. He's saying this to everyone. And if we are to be his disciples, he wants us to be aware there's a great cost. There's a great cost. We must deny ourselves, our own natural, sinful, self-centered selves to lose your life. You may have heard it said that Christianity is, is all about winning at life. And in the ultimate sense, friends, that surely is true. But first, you must come to grip with the fact that Christianity is for losers. If you want to save your life, you must lose your life for his sake. I think that's an important difference. Some might lay down their life, but really they've just taken up self-pitying pride. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe someone's having a long bout maybe of marriage difficulties, and they've decided that they're not going to get a divorce. divorce. They've, they've resolved themselves to that. But the question is, are they doing that primarily to save face? Are they doing it so their, their kids don't resent them? Or are they honoring their, their commitment that they made before God to love and cherish and honor their spouse? I mean, it's, you see, it's the same action, hopefully with the same result, but that's a very different posture. It's a different approach, different motivation. This might seem too obvious to mention, but I can't pass over it. Self-denial cannot be done for selfish reasons. Christianity is not for you primarily to come win at life. It's for you to lay down your life so that you might gain life. Jesus says that if you lose your life for his sake, not for your own sake, then you save it. Take up your cross. But what is your cross? You might be wondering. Well, you know, Jesus in the Bible... And the words of the Bible, the language of the Bible has been so formative in American history and in American culture, this phrase that comes from the Bible of taking up your cross has drifted over into common vernacular. Uh, everybody just says it. It's 
a cross I have to bear, right? Surely you've heard that before. And often it's used very lightly, right? Without a full understanding of what that actually means. You might say, oh, you know, Sam, why don't you have another donut? Oh, no, thanks, Jerry. I'm cutting back. It's the cross I have to bear. That is not how the crowd would have understood Jesus when he said cross. It's estimated that there were some 30,000 crucifixions that happened just during the lifetime of Jesus. So they would have been very familiar with the cross. They would have known exactly what he meant when he said that. When Jesus said cross, they would have thought painful, humiliating death. Someone who's carrying their cross is heading for a crucifixion. They're essentially a dead man walking. So to take up your cross, I think, means to be willing to pay any price for Jesus' sake. To endure shame and scorn. To endure rejection, embarrassment. And I think even martyrdom for his sake, if need be. For a lot of Christians... In history, across the world, for thousands of years, it actually has called for martyrdom. Tradition tells us that most of the disciples were were crucified. And even today, in many places, you can be imprisoned, or worse, for claiming the name of Christ, for being a follower of Jesus. But here in America, we don't typically see that level of persecution. So what might it look like in our own context, to take up your cross for Christ. Well, it's it's obviously going to look very different for different people. And so what I've got here is just a varied list of some various thoughts, okay? A few thoughts. This is what it might look like to take up your cross. We see a cross-centered submission to Christ when a husband remains devoted to his wife as she slips into dementia, because he wants to honor the wife of his youth and love her as Christ loved the church. When a boss, a boss who is known to be Christian around the office, seeks reconciliation with an employee, instead of letting it stew, instead of attacking the employee, even though it might be costly to her, not for her own purposes, but because she wants to show grace in the same way that Christ has shown grace to her. We see a cross-centered submission to Christ when a teenager decides not to go to a party that she knows will tempt her into sin. And when her friends ask her why she can't go, she doesn't simply say that she has a headache or she needs to catch up on the Gilmore Girls. She says that she should not go because she's a Christian. She just needs to bow out. And in doing that, she shows that she's not ashamed of Jesus. She's not ashamed of his words. Or when a man who battles same-sex attraction recognizes that his cross is refusing to ground his identity in his desires as, his, as our surrounding generation would encourage him to do. He's willing to give up what he thinks is the deepest sense of his very identity because he realizes that Jesus has invited him to come and to die. To deny himself rather than to seek satisfaction outside of marriage 
as Jesus is plainly taught that it is in Matthew 19. And he does it for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. And maybe it's a professor who's unwilling to renounce his faith in Christ, despite the fact that that might put serious limitations on his career in the scientific community. And he does it because Christ opened his eyes to follow him in a cross-centered life. Or when the bereaved and angry and confused mother who's lost her two daughters in a tragic accident collapses onto the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Though she may never understand why on this side of glory and she will no doubt always be haunted by questions, nevertheless, she resigns herself to the unchanging goodness and omnibenevolence of God. She doesn't turn from him. She turns to him. She picks up her cross. She follows Jesus. So what is your cross, Christian? Do you know? Are you afraid, perhaps, that you're not following Jesus? Maybe you don't have a cross, and that's kind of freaked you out now. That's possible. That might be, that might be true. I think that's a legitimate application of this. But you should also know, friends, that it is entirely possible that you are carrying a cross for Christ, and yet you find its burden to be so light, and you bear it in such humble obedience that you're completely unaware of the fact that you're carrying it at all. Because of your your new nature that Christ has given to you when you've been able to see Jesus as the Christ, you don't see your cross as, as a burden, as a duty, but you see it as a delight. And so it's hard for you to even notice that you're carrying your cross. I think this is why it's so good to have other Christians in your life, uh, maybe even in your community group, who are willing to and able to, to look at you and to look at your life and say, listen, I just want to encourage you. I have seen the way that you've taken up your cross for the sake of Jesus. Uh, don't be discouraged. Don't think that you have not done it. Uh, it might just be so light to you that you haven't noticed it, but friend, I see it in you. And I want to encourage you in that. And perhaps there's someone in your small group your community group, who's denying themselves for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel, and they don't know. Maybe today, after the service, you can go and tell them. You should go see him. You should go tell him. But this is important. This is really important. Please remember this. Your cross is not Jesus' cross. They're different. Your cross is not Jesus' cross. Here's, Here's how. Your cross does not atone for sins. That's big. It's important, but it it seems like something that we need to mention here. Your cross does not make you right with God. That's Jesus' cross. Uh, The reason I mention this is because, as you may know, I was in the Philippines a couple weeks ago with Mark and Paige and and Dave Evans, and we went and visited Fred Avilas, our supported missionary there. We were there during Holy Week, that, that week before Easter, in between Palm Sunday and Easter, where this is sort of an important time in, in the church calendar. And while we were there, Fred told us about this, this tradition that they have in the Philippines. He said that on the very day that we were going to be leaving, that very day that we were going to be heading to the airport, there were going to be people that were gathering around the Philippines, around the country, and even in his neighborhood. Maybe you've seen this on the news. They were going to take up their cross and follow Jesus. But they're doing it in a different way that I think Jesus actually calls us to. I think they've been misled because when they're taking up their cross, they're driving nails into their hands. 
driving literal real nails into their hands, into their feet, putting on crowns of thorns, whipping themselves, and being crucified, being hung on a cross. That's what they think. That's what they think that calling the calling of Christ is. This is why I need to mention this. You need to know that your cross is not Jesus's. You don't need to whip yourself. You don't need to put on a crown of thorns. You don't persecute yourself in order to get rid of your sin, okay? Please don't leave here thinking that you do. You don't atone for yourself by taking up your cross. Jesus has not called you to cause yourself to suffer in order to earn your right standing with God or to gain favor with him or to get rid of your sin. I mean, if that was his idea, if that was what Jesus called us to, he would have never had to come and die. He would have never lived as a, as a perfect man, perfectly obedient to the Father and dying in our place. He wouldn't need to do that, right? So our mission is not to atone for our sins with our cross. Our mission is to have a cross-centered submission to cross, to Christ and his, his leadership, his will. Notice finally, though, that Jesus says that he will come in glory to judge. And if you have been ashamed of him, he's going to be ashamed of you. See this here. He comes in glory. Comes in the glory of his Father. And how does that glory come? It comes through the cross. And for us to follow him into that glory, it requires that we call that, he, that we take up our cross and suffer with him so that we can be with him in glory. So if you're not a believer here, when you look at the cross, you might see nothing more than sadness, maybe helplessness, maybe hopelessness. But for someone who sees Jesus as the Christ because it's been revealed to him by God with an eye of faith, the cross is glorious. The cross is beautiful. The cross is, the cross is wonderful. Let me read again, just in closing, that definition of a Christian that we heard from, from Hodge one more time. See if this makes more sense to you, if he rings more true. A Christian is one who recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, as God manifested in the flesh, loving us and dying for our redemption, and who is so affected by a sense of the love of this incarnate God as to be constrained to make the will of Christ the rule of his obedience and the glory of Christ the great end for which he lives. Friends, if Christ has opened your eyes to follow him in a cross-centered life, even this morning, if you want to talk more about what that means, what that looks like, Pastor Josh would love to talk to you. I'm sure he'll be at the back doors. You can come talk to me. I'd be glad to talk to you. And if this has happened, it couldn't have happened in a better place. You're surrounded by people who would love nothing more than to talk to you about Jesus here on Sunday morning. If you have any questions, turn to someone that's next to you. If they don't have answers, they can surely point you to someone who does. Is this the Christ? Is this the Son of God? If it is, do I understand him? Do I see him? Do I see his mission? Would I follow him to the death? What would happen if I did? If I didn't? These are questions that we all, hopefully, have answered before we leave here today. Pray with me.